0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I'll be speaking with Constantine Manthus, MD, who is with us to discuss his article published in the August Critical Care Medicine titled, Patient-Centered Critical Care Reconsidered Ruminations of Bygone Continuity and Fear and Trembling. Manthus is an Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine, and just finished 19 years as the Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit and Director of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the Bridgeport Hospital in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He'll be starting a new position at the Hospital of Central Connecticut this September. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Manthus. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, reading your your recent article or essay in uh, Critical Care Medicine, and it actually reminded me of a very recent story that um, I thought would be interesting to share with you and uh, and have your reflection. But uh, I took over uh, during my week in the intensive care unit, uh, and it was uh, taking care of a 70-year-old so uh, woman with, with uh, multiple medical conditions who had been in the area uh, of a surgical intensive care unit for the previous year. Uh, about two weeks uh, with multi system organ failure after uh, an operation for a small bowel obstruction and, and clearly was not improving, had uh, evidence of s- systemic uh, emboli from probably atrial fibrillation. I uh, began to engage the family and uh, as it turned out, it was quite a large family. I was able to gain trust um, and a relationship with some of the members, not all. And as the discussion ensued over several days, the patient's uh, primary care physician walked onto the care in, intensive care unit. Uh, I've known him for 20-some years. I had not known that he was this woman's primary care physician. As it turns out, he had been taking care of this woman for about 20 years. 20, 25 years and knew her quite well. I had just found out that she was in the intensive care unit within the last 24 hours and had had a discussion with the patient's uh, family, having known some of them for uh, that period of time as well, and was really able to bring uh, consensus to the table and uh, allow for um, peaceful passing of this patient uh, over the next 24 hours. So I was really struck as I read your essay how many. Uh, Of those points, you actually touch upon how continuity brings so much to the table, uh, especially in uh, some of our critically ill patients. thought I'd get some of your reflections. Well, it's
1: a a fantastic story that most of us probably deal with on a regular basis. You were able, uh, through uh, colleguing uh, or collaborating with uh, the primary care doc, uh, to to get uh, the patient uh, served well. But... Uh, I, I suspect uh, in, in, in our model in most places is probably the exception rather than the rule. Absolutely. And, you know there were there were so many interesting little pieces of that. You know um, we struggled for years with this kind of concept. Is that some of our primary care colleagues would approach us and say, "Geez, I didn't know uh, Mrs. Smith was even in the unit. I would have loved to come up and see her." And the, and the truth is, we tried multiple permutations of a, of a system, an automatic system to notify people, but even their their practices have become so, not chaotic, but fractured, that there may be days and times when they're not on, uh, the message doesn't get to them, uh, they may get the message and not be able to make the time to come before the patient's out of the ICU, or worse. So I think your example I think is a perfect example. Here you had someone who really was involved with uh, Brought a lot to the table, and lots of logistics that get in the way nowadays. Both at the primary care physicians' end and at our end, as as intensive.
0: Yeah, in this situation, I mean, it was almost by chance that uh, he found out she, that she was in the hospital. We don't we don't have any uh, routine mechanism of trying to cons- contact uh, primary care physicians, uh, despite not really knowing the value that they can bring to the table.
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that the, that that's a good teaching point there, and and like I said, uh, we for the past year tried very hard to to create a system and a backup system. So there was a little bit of redundancy built into it. So the idea was that the ward clerk would call the doctor's office or answering service uh, just to alert them uh, that the patient had been admitted to the unit and the the residents were supposed to be doing it as well. So, yeah, I would say in the majority of cases, probably most of the uh, cases were relayed. And, uh, and, and in fact, some primary care docs do come in and actually uh, co-team with us co-manage the other thing that, that i think is important is just uh, for the family to know that dr x is involved makes a big difference to them and, and not and not infrequently they'll they'll ask overtly you know has, has dr x been called there you know what does he think uh, because that's who they know that's the the person who they have a relationship they don't know us from <laughs> from adam because uh, they've never met us before
0: usually yeah, yeah it's very interesting uh Perhaps we before we even try and get into some of the solutions, uh, not that many perfect solutions exist currently, but take a step back and and talk about you know kind of how we got here. Certainly, um we've seen the evolution and almost mandate of an intensivist uh, program. The hospitalist programs have taken off. and and along with that, it seems as though we with this uh, with the eighty hour work restrictions on residents, we're having potentially more and more difficulties. With continuity. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about the, some of the historical concepts and also how we got here. What are the advantages of our current system and, and what are some of the disadvantages?
1: Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a great way of uh, framing uh, uh, the problem because in any new system there's going to be some upsides and downsides. Uh, having trained in the 80s, I was right at that juncture when critical care was starting to take off. I experienced the evolution in community medicine as a model of primary care docs uh, taking care of their patients in the unit and maybe, maybe not using an intensivist to help uh, or a consultant to help, and then uh, moving uh, almost entirely to uh, the system where the intensivist is taking care of patients. And what I can say is that, you know, we created the science to support the idea that patients uh, get better care from a mortality perspective and maybe even from a length-of-stay perspective. You know, that's what that uh, Pronovost study and, and several studies that followed it have but suggested. But other outcomes haven't been really looked at very carefully. And, you know, some of the important outcomes are the quality of life-following intensive care, the quality of death uh, of the patient uh, since, you know, 20% of the patients in medical intensive care units pass away. Uh, and, and those kinds of variables are, are still uh, being uh, worked out uh, because it's, uh, what's becoming more and more clear is that uh, there's quite a burden to survival. Often patients don't really know what they've signed up for. So we may have created a great system at at, uh, salvaging life, but for some people it it may not be a life that they would have chosen if they had been fully informed. And so what's the upside? The upside is that we probably are providing technically more proficient care uh, in a system in which the team members know each other uh, better than they did in the old days when they were, you know, Five different docs for every patient, and the nurses could barely figure out who's taking care of whom. Now, at least there's some centralized team collaboration that that's leveraged to improve patient care. Um, but uh, the downside is that um, uh, we've amputated the principal pe- uh, uh, caregivers who to have a having enduring relationship. In fact, you know it's a relationship by choice. Most most patients choose their physicians because they kind of like that physician. They grow to trust them and and um, are, are somewhat consoled by the fact that that person is involved in making decisions with them. I think the, the hospitalist intensivist model really uh, has divorced uh, patients from uh, their, their, the people who have the greatest emotional attachment to them, in their, really in their greatest time of need. You know, when you're really sick, uh, maybe dying, uh, it doesn't make sense uh, to amputate uh, that person. Uh, and it's also not very kind to the physicians themselves. I mean, there was a time when I felt, as an intensivist, I felt slighted because, you know, the primary care docs didn't really want me around to, to help take care of patients. And they uh, slowly grew into the idea they began to trust me. Well, now it's a reciprocal where they're not uh, being involved in the care. And I think that's just as wrong as the old model where intensivists were cut out of the picture. I think um, I, I've really come to the conclusion that the team model where there's some form of collaboration would be the ideal. The question is, I think, how to get there. And I think you can look at this from the vantage point of both, of both doctors and patients and other team members. I think there are both positives and negatives uh, that accrue from in both systems. And the question is, can you make this new system, which isn't going anywhere, this is the this is the new healthcare reality? Uh, how, can we make it uh, more compatible with a humane approach to uh, acute illness and death?
0: As I, as you were beginning to to speak, I, I was thinking about how crude probably that's the right word, mortality and length of stay are as metrics for quality in the intensive care unit, and that in, in order to truly measure quality and and meeting patients' needs in a patient-centered approach, we need better metrics to truly truly study the, the effects of such proposals.
1: Yeah, I think um, there's no doubt that that's true, and I think that though we're on the way to that, I mean, I um, can't remember the, the, the name of the... Um, there's a, there's a new system that that is going to be, where hospitals are going to be uh, judged by uh, patient satisfaction.
0: Value-based purchasing. And,
1: yeah, and, you know? and some of that, you know, some of that is coercive and and probably not all that evidence-based. But I think making us more respond to need to the needs uh, of the, of the people we're, we're taking care of, I think is is not a bad thing. You know, to turn us into Walmart, I think, is a bad thing. But I think to turn us, to to, to allow us to, to get back in touch is creating systems that serve these people more humanely is a good thing. And so we have to find a balance as we approach uh, patient satisfaction uh, uh, metrics that, that, are, that we think are evidence-based. And I think you're right. We, we need to formulate that evidence now. Uh, we don't even know the right
2: questions to
0: ask. I, I know you have a, a pretty strong background in medical ethics, and I was wondering if you could put some framework about our current models of shift work and handoffs and uh, loss of continuity in a a more of an ethical and professional framework?
1: I think that's an an interesting uh, conundrum uh, because uh, nobody, you know, an ideal would be uh, maybe you come on for two weeks and you stay on call for two weeks the entire time. But we know that 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 can be destructive both for the individual and have downsides for, for the quality of patient. So there has to be some way of, Creating um, handoffs that uh, that that's safe. But with that said, I believe that we've gone too far uh, in in creating handoffs. So nowadays there are daytime uh, you know, hospitalists or intensivists. There are nocturnists. There are residents that are in the, in the blend. And all of those systems all of those systems are, are created not for the, the good of the patient, but rather for the for the good of systems. little bit I come on service. It takes me at least two or three days before I'm I feel comfortable, and on top of everything that's going on in the patients I inherited on a given Monday. So it, it's usually I come on on Monday morning, and by by Wednesday maybe I'm starting to feel more comfortable that I that uh, everything all the eyes are dotted and teeth are crossed. Now imagine a system where okay, it, it's a, it's a one week rotation. By, uh, and you're off the service by Sunday. So you it, it took you three days to, to catch up. you got four days where you're on top of things, and then suddenly you're gone and someone else is going through the same problem. So I think we, we need to think about, from an ethical perspective, are we doing this for our own well-being or are we doing this uh, for patients' well-being? And I, I think anybody who just listens to what I just said will, will have to think long and hard about one-week rotations. In fact, even two-week rotations, Uh, can be quite fragmented. And there are going to be nocturnists uh, taking care of patients. They need to be the same nocturnists. So maybe there's a dyad of one daytime intensivist and one nighttime intensivist so they both get to know the patients extremely well and have very, very careful handoffs. You know, I guess in most teaching institutions you have house staff who are continuous over the course of a month. But with their duty hours, they have their own problems of fragmentation. So, you know, I think there is an ethical problem. But we created a model that that I don't think I function under both models, where I was on for a whole month at a time and when I've been on for a week at a time. And I can tell you I, I feel much better with a longer duration, more tired, but, but I think I form better relationships with people and with the, take, take better care of patients as a whole.
0: Certainly, intuitively, it would seem that the the more connection you have, the better the care will be. That it, that maybe it is slightly different care potentially will lead to better outcomes. But sometimes a better
1: outcome is a, is a is a quiet, peaceful death. Absolutely. Wants. Your your example, I thought, was was perfect, because what would have happened if you took all that time to get to know the patient, the attending, the primary care attending never did show up, and then Monday came, and your partner had to start from scratch again, forming that relationship and, and getting all that started again. I found that very common. Uh, uh, they, they would say, well, Dr. A, who well, we been taking, uh, has been taking, talking to us for the past two weeks, we had a great idea of what we were going to do here, and you almost, it almost takes them a couple days just to to get to the point where they can trust you to have conversations of that importance.
0: Yeah, and it's also always um, concerning because you know each of your partners or colleagues will have a slightly different take on the case uh, or even moral ethical framework uh, to work through the case. Uh, so you have that change as well. That always yeah, cons- and that always concerns me.
1: It does. I mean, and, and what it does is it, it, it can it can create mixed messages for the for the patients that actually undermine trust. So if Doctor X was just your predecessor was telling them everything is looking good and, and mom is going to get better and uh, going to be going home at some point, and you come on and you say, uh, geez, this not only is the chance not good that she's going, not going to go home, but, but also that if she does survive, it's going to be a wretched survival. You know what? How does a family make sense of something like right. that? They're, they have two purported experts telling them diametrically opposed things about something as fundamental as someone's death and whether to – to continue to trudge on through a, tr- a trial of critical care versus liberating them to, to pass on, I, these are these are important problems that we created that are artifice of the system
0: that we have. You know, in some ways, I guess the best test of our system is what we what what we want for ourselves or for our loved ones. And I, I do wonder how we how we do find the balance. So you, so, certainly, a, the well being of the physician taking care of the patient, the well being of the healthcare worker taking care of the patient is important uh, for the well being or um, piece of the patient where I wonder where that balance is and how we how we continue to move forward and and judge our systems based on what is what is best for our patients
1: I mean I think there's, uh, there are lots of very smart young people who are now beginning to wrap themselves around some of these questions and really attempting to understand what are the components that, that constitute quality well beyond mortality and length of stay so that we, we can begin the, the process of, of answering the, those questions. Because you can't, we can't even answer them until we create the metrics, you know, uh, reasonable, valid metrics to wrap ourselves around the problem. And I think with time, some things will will we'll slowly sort out. I think uh, some great work was done at the Mayo and other places that began to answer some of the questions from you know raw mortality and length of stay perspective. Uh, Randy Curtis's study regarding end of life and and uh, proactive conferences and with end of life experts also is is a step in the right direction because it, it begins to ask questions from a more humanistic standpoint. And are, are we doing right by our patients to help them uh, either survive better or?
0: Given that twenty percent of uh, our patients do die in the intensive care unit, what are some of the implications of having a, essentially a, a group of strangers um, managing their death? And you know, the, the reverse is—is is that how I would, or is that how one of our loved ones would perceive their their last moments, uh, or last even days or weeks in life?
1: I think it's going to be incumbent upon us as, uh, as leaders uh, in intensive care and as teachers of intensive care to ask our trainees and, and the people who are providing the care, whether they're uh, APRNs or PAs or, or residents in training, to include in their problem list exactly those kinds of issues. There's a, there's a move on to improve our cultural competence so that we can actually understand the end-of-life religious practices or, or, or different customs that, are, that, that help to make people more comfortable. I'll, I'll just give you an example of last year I was on around the Thanksgiving time. Our family asked whether we would be okay. They came and decorated the room with Christmas uh, stuff. And the reason was, as they said, because Mom uh, loves Christmas and it's not that far off. We think it would help to make her more at peace. And, I we, of course, we allowed that is is that there are probably lots of patients who have particular customs that they would bring to the bedside if we only opened the door and entertained it routinely as part of our practice so just the same way we write about the pulmonary system or the renal system uh, every day some of these uh, cultural competence issues and end-of-life uh, humanity issues really deserve greater attention explicitly in our daily in our daily processes and I, I think we're getting better at that, I think, better than that, at that than we were 20 years ago, but also we still have a way
0: to go. Yes, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's certainly been great talking to you, and uh, I think you brought up some very interesting points for our community at large to think about. We certainly look forward to you and other folks um, expanding more and hopefully uh, centering some uh, further research on these efforts to come up with some viable solutions. Appreciate you joining us today. Well,
1: I'm very grateful for the invitation.
0: This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash care for more episodes or subscribe at iTunes by searching SCCM. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein.
2: If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.